0: Up on today's show, there's no shortage of criticism, but today we offer a defense of the UCP curriculum rewrite from a member of the advisory panel. And economists and business groups call on the federal government to turn down the heat. Too much stimulus spending could backfire. Let's talk about a defense of the UCP curriculum rewrite. As you know, within minutes of the UCP's uh, proposed curriculum uh, becoming public, it was excoriated by critics, educators, academics, parents, political opponents, school boards. They've all taken their turn ripping it apart, saying it is a total disaster and should never find its way into a classroom. Of course, not everyone feels that way. There are those who find some merit in the plan, and we're happy to have one such proponent joining us this morning to offer a defense of this rewrite, and we'll see... If maybe, just maybe, there's something that we haven't heard yet. There's something that we don't know just yet that could change our discussion. Maybe not. Let's find out. Ashley Berner is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University and a member of the UCP Curriculum Advisory Panel. She joins us now. Ashley, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Um, You know, I'm not going to ask for your resume, so to speak, but I'm sure some listeners are curious as to how somebody from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore ends up being part of this panel. Um, This is what you do, right? Education policy, is that's your wheelhouse.
1: That's right. Our institute at Johns Hopkins uh, looks at curricula and structure and content, particularly civics, education of school systems from around the world. So it's not Infrequent for us to be asked to review or comment on the merits of particular curricula.
0: Um, now, you recently wrote a piece titled In Defense of Alberta's Proposed Elementary School Curriculum. Uh, let's just go through some of the points that you make. The focus um, is on content, not Necessarily, I don't know what you call it. Learning skills, I guess it's. Uh, some people call it just straight memorization of facts. Um, that is a major issue for a lot of the people in Alberta who have a problem with the curriculum. Why do you say, in some ways, that can be a very good thing?
1: I, I wouldn't want to defend rote memorization, and I didn't actually see that when I took a look at the curriculum. Um, I think what what I find striking and is the the premise that knowledge. Is important, that content mastery is important. There's a very compelling research case to be made that particularly with closing achievement gaps between wealthy and low-income kids, first-generation kids, that exposure to background knowledge makes the difference, that the achievement gaps are, by and large, knowledge gaps. And in this sense, the United States school systems, in opting for process over content, have really done a disservice to our low-income kids. So I think it's, it's. Uh, well, I, I don't represent the government. I wasn't paid by mm-hmm. the government. I certainly am not responsible for micro-decisions within the curriculum. I do support the underlying premise that a substantive knowledge build is important.
0: Um, one of the other things you talk about, and this has been a, another uh, bone of contention for a lot of people, um, you know, the curriculum being pluralistic and, and, and uh, multi layered, as you call it. Um, you know, uh, let's talk about Indigenous groups and Indigenous group education within this curriculum. Um... Uh, A lot of the groups that are involved, like we spoke with the Métis Nation of Alberta last week on the air, who said that they don't feel like they were represented at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's Mm -hmm. your take on how that component of the social studies curriculum is being incorporated?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it is important going forward for there to be a consultative process. I'm not here to defend the process that was put in place. Mm I was struck when I reviewed the curriculum that the first grade was focused very much on indigenous communities. And in, in fact, that one of the appealing things about the curriculum was in building knowledge, it didn't shy away from the hard questions and the brutality of sort of cultural majorities. Um, this is something that we look at in curriculum. Are there multiple viewpoints. Are there tough conversations? Are students scaffolded as they learn how to disagree? Um, this, this seemed to me quite present in the social studies curriculum. I, I'm a former social studies teacher, and my training's in history, so I focused on that when I did an informal review.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so you're not so much talking about the specifics, because there are people who are saying, well, we don't mention the fact that we essentially use Chinese slave labor to build the railroad, and we, there's no mention of Japanese internment.
1: Oh, they do, but, but actually they, they do mention that.
0: And, um, you know, being from the United States, I'm particularly concerned
1: about, in my country, the rise of nativism yet again. Mm-hmm. And the deleterious effects that that has on our political discourse and on our citizenship formation. And I actually, I was, I did note, take note of the fact that the enslavement of Africans, that the persecution of Sikhs, that the, um, you know, restriction, restrictionist policies towards Chinese. This wasn't shied away from in the curriculum. Now, it it may be that it should be enhanced even more, but I certainly didn't find those to be absent.
0: That it was completely neglected. Okay. Um, Another issue is... It
1: it actually wasn't. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan was mentioned, and um, this is very concerning stuff. I think it's important that the next generation know that nativism and populism have
0: negative consequences. Um. Age appropriateness. Uh, Some of the things seem to be maybe uh, a little over the head of the students that they are being um, introduced to. Um, When you put together a curriculum like that, um, how important is that? I mean, a lot of people saying some of the concepts and some of the the subject matter is just beyond the age group that you're trying to teach it to here. Mm
1: -hmm. This is uh, something that we struggle with in the States. We could learn from other countries that are probably do a better job of serving their kids. I think we underchallenge our kids. We what by focusing on developmentally appropriate as opposed to really challenging students, you know, certainly in the United States, the odds of low income children being given rigorous and challenging material is is de minimis. And so I do believe that children are capable of handling much more rigorous content, but that goes to the heart, I think, of the real internal debate to education that I I really wanted to emphasize Mm -hmm. here, that content mastery and content knowledge is more critical than process. And this is a debate that's been, you know, the United States, in our educational establishment, Teachers College, Columbia, embraced this notion that process and skills were more important than content a hundred years ago, and unfortunately, that's still um, still an, an an argument that we're having. But it's one worth having, and I think the there is compelling research evidence that knowledge matters for closing achievement
0: gaps. Shouldn't the the two work hand in hand, I would think? I mean, for me, you need to have that foundational knowledge and then work with the processes, right?
1: I do. I think that the knowledge is prior and that one learns the skills of learning by engaging with real content. One of the researchers on this subject, Daniel Willingham, is at the University of Virginia, and he talks about the stickiness of knowledge, that the more we know, the more we can know. And that's why when we look at curricula and we see a sequenced and spiraled build buildup of, of core content that should be inclusive and diverse, it should be pluralistic and so forth, that this actually enables future learning. Um, There was a study on United States test scores that came out recently showing that students who had been given more exposure to social studies content actually did better on basic reading tests. And that's because they have more content to make passages understandable. So yes, I do think the process is important. The process should come as a result of engaging with really challenging and interesting material.
0: One issue that uh, and listeners are weighing in this morning and it's the one I think bugs me the most. I'm not an educator and I, uh, so I don't think that uh, you know I'm really qualified to weigh in on the the pros and cons of the curriculum itself, but one thing that really bothers me it seems to be pretty well documented that some of it seems to be I don't know if plagiarized is the right word, but just lifted from the internet and other sources and things like that. As someone who works around educational policy and curriculum building, it seems to me like that's not the way we want to go about this, and we're not getting, you know, what we paid for. Um, Is that something you've ever seen before, and is that something that's in any way excusable? I, look, I, everything should be cited.
1: And I don't know how the documents and the draft curriculum were put together but absolutely yes they should be cited and there are things that some of your you know so Albertan's wrote me over the over the weekend and one thing that was particularly striking i think and i agree with is that i mentioned in my op-ed the religious literacy mm-hmm. it is important One thing that that needs to be made, I would hope, a little more evident is the non-religious worldviews. You know, most of our OECD partners require comparative religion and philosophy every year. Um, Most of our school systems in the States don't. So I think it is to the credit of the curriculum designers that they were building in systematic knowledge about what people think and believe secularism also should have its place in the curriculum. Uh, you know, there, there should be a study, now this may be more appropriate in secondary school, I don't know, mm-hmm. but right, yeah. of, of Marxism, of libertarianism, of utilitarianism, of the different philosophical perspectives that also animate human life, for good and for ill. I mean, this is not a black-and-white conversation. There's nuance and depth, and teachers are the ones who bring that nuance and depth to the classroom.
0: Ashley, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. I've got to let you go, but I appreciate you taking the time to join us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. That is Ashley Berner, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and she is a member of Alberta's Curriculum Advisory Panel. We're all watching and waiting to see what's going to happen with the federal budget coming down the pike later on today, uh, about four hours from right now. Uh, It's a big one. It's the first budget in this country in more than two years. Um, It is also a non-confidence vote due to the fact that it's a money bill, which means that the Liberals are going to need somebody to join them in getting this through the House. And if they don't, we're right into a federal election campaign. And we also know it's going to be huge. It's going to see a tremendous amount of spending in this budget. Uh, The deficit projected to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion, almost half a trillion dollars in deficit this year alone. Um, Now, much of the spending is centered around pandemic response, economic recovery, getting people back to work, all those sorts of things. Sounds good on the surface, But um, last November was when the federal government unveiled their plans to help the Canadian uh, economy and the jobs market rebound. The key piece then was $100 billion in stimulus spending to be spent over three years. Now, as things have developed since then, just over the last four or five months, um, and as more of the predictions that we see for what's coming up in the future of a roaring economy on the horizon, there are experts calling on the Fed's to maybe just scale that back a little bit. Maybe it's too much. David McKay, who is chief executive of the Royal Bank of Canada, is calling for a restraint, saying we do not want to overdo this. And he is not alone. The Business Council of Canada saying the exact same thing. Uh, Goldie Hyder is the chief executive of the Business Council of Canada, and he joins us now. Uh, Goldie, thanks so much for taking some time with us. We appreciate it. Good to be with you, Sheikh. So, the measures that we're talking about here and all of the spending that we're talking about, of course, meant to bring down soaring unemployment and restart the economy after what was the single biggest retraction in generations. But have things changed that much to when these plans were laid out that maybe we don't need it anymore? Well, you mentioned soaring
2: unemployment. Um, in fact, we're going in the other direction, yeah. as the evidence shows in the last few months here, far in excess of the predictions of even the smartest of economists. We've gone uh, in several hundred thousand jobs in the last couple of months here. And, you know, companies don't hire because they think they're going to have a good week or a good month or a good quarter. They hire because they think they got a viable business that needs talent. So to me, that's a real indication of business confidence. Bank of Canada has said business confidence has returned to where it was in pre-pandemic levels, and, and you know, I know this is hard for for me to say this for Albertans, but I mean, the rest of the country in the labor shortage is very very severe, and so I think that what we're seeing here is an economy that's ready to just, you know, I could say slingshot out of the gate here Uh, mixing metaphors a bit, but I mean, it it is ready to go, and all we need is those vaccines in people's arms, build back confidence, and the demand will return. Most of the people who are unemployed today still remain in those so-called distressed sectors that are effectively uh, complying with laws of the land today, so whether you're in tourism or hospitality or you know, um, or restaurants and so forth, it's not your fault. Uh, but you had a viable business before the pandemic and you'll have a viable business after the pandemic. So that's why we're saying keep your powder dry. The economy's coming back. Let the private sector lead the growth, let the private sector create the jobs. And if somewhere down the road more needs to be done because you know things go awry or something else happens you've got some capacity but if you go too far down this road here you're going to put yourself into a corner and you know what happens when that happens right i mean (laughs) you know the you got someone's got to pay all this back sure
0: exactly yeah i mean let's take a look at a couple of the the stats that we were talking about back in november unemployment 13.7 now Mm -hmm. 7.5 growth rate predicted uh At 6%, uh, it's, uh, not, you know, it was 4.8 back in November. So you're Mm -hmm. right. We're already seeing things rebound before we even get into the post pandemic phase exactly. And, you know, the
2: unemployment in going into the pandemic was about 5.1, 5.2. So we're less than two percentage points away from where we were. And as you know, we're still having this, this uh, you know, situation, um, you know, play, play mischief with our lives, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the pandemic is very much alive and well. The variants are, are having their, 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 their hay here. And at the end of the day, we still know these vaccines are coming. There's going to be a lot of them. We're going to get get our vaccines in our arms, a minimum of one. You know, I think every Canadian will have that on um, I'm just going to say June, because the estimate says we're going to have 48 million vaccines by June. So I know uh, there's a lot of anxiety about the slow start and all of that. Look, when you're not a vaccine manufacturing country, you're not at the front of the line. Right. That's just how it works. So what it says to me, though, is policy matters. We were a vaccine manufacturing country and we aren't today. So days like today, we have to look carefully. Is this government bringing about an actual long term growth strategy for the country? Because the short term, I think, is going to take care of itself, to be very honest with you. But what about the long What about when that you know that high of the six percent goes back down to what some have called the two percent trap? Two percent's not good enough. We need to be more ambitious. And so, what we're looking for is: is there a plan to give Canadians hope, not just for the short term, but for the long haul?
0: What about all these reports that there are? You know, I mean, a lot of people have been really hard hit by the pandemic, of course, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who haven't been and are now sitting on piles of cash that they typically would have spent Mm -hmm. over the last 14 months. That money is going to come in off the sidelines too, right? Well, as I said,
2: if you build back confidence, the demand is just, it's caged up. It's ready to be unleashed. I don't know about you, but most Canadians I talk to are like, when can I go see my family? When can I take a vacation? You know, when can I go to the mall again and shop? So Canadians are ready. Uh, You know, there's $200 billion, it's estimated, in the pockets of Canadians and another $80 billion in the pockets of of, of, of businesses. And so you've got what the minister herself has called preloaded stimulus, which begs the question, you know, don't create stimulus on job creation programs, right? What we want are job-enabling things like childcare, like digital infrastructure for the reasons that you cited right off the top. You know, I mean, it's become the oxygen to an economy here. So let's make sure the spending is productivity enhancing, uh,
0: not doing what I really think the private sector is ready to do, which is hire people and get people back to work. Of course, we live uh, next to the largest economy on the planet, and um, that always affects what we do. They're talking Mm -hmm. about, I mean, it makes ours seem minuscule in comparison, $2 trillion in stimulus spending. Um, Are they going to overcharge their economy, and what will that that do to Canada?
2: Well, let me say two things about that. On the one hand... (laughs) You know, um, when they do what they're gonna, they're gonna do here, we're gonna, we're gonna get a spillover effect. Whether we did nothing today, we're gonna get a benefit from the boon that's gonna come from that. Some estimate in the tune of 50 to 70 billion dollars of uptick to our GDP just because of the supply chain impact of their actions on infrastructure and other things. But the other side of that is, you know, um, when the American economy takes off, if interest rates go up, uh, and inflation occurs, then that that also trickles into Canada. And that's what we're warning the minister about yeah. is, look, money's not free. Low interest, strat- uh, interest rates is not an economic strategy. Uh, it's good fortune that it's happening when it did. Thank God our interest rates weren't 10% when we had to dole out $400 billion. But it doesn't mean it's going to stay at 1% or 2% for a long time either. And so the very programs that you're creating or the very people that you're trying to help may be the ones who get harmed when inflation happens because cuts happen. You know, unemployment happens. People don't get uh, to enter the housing market at that time. People, you know, the rich get richer when inflation happens and the poor get poorer. So be careful not to trigger that by overstimulating the economy is a, is a big part of our message.
0: Yeah, I mean, that risk, right, is uh, inflation and therefore rising interest rates. Things can get out of control in a hurry with this kind of money being thrown around.
2: It doesn't take much. And look, I mean, no one can tell you. I mean, first of all, it's not in our control. Right, We right. don't control inflation. We don't control the interest rate here. And it's going to be driven by global circumstances and events. My dear boy, events, as the famous saying goes. Uh, you know, a simple, uh, you know, something in crazy in North Korea could happen. And the guess thing you know, you know, it's going to impact the, the global economy. So we've got to protect ourselves from that. And the best way to do that is have a plan, uh, control the things that we control. Let's be ambitious in our, you know, in our tr- climate agenda in terms of the transition and make sure that the energy sector is at the front and center of that. They're the ones who are going to lead it. You can't do it without them. There's also no recovery in Canada without the energy sector. So we're hoping that while there's a lot of talk about a green budget, it has to be a sensible green budget and a responsible one that that preserves the jobs, grows the jobs, and creates jobs of the future and facilitates the creation of those jobs, um, but doesn't go to such an extent that we end up harming ourselves. We we know that there's there's no way to deal with this issue unless you're helping China and India. So let's bring about the innovation. Let's be deliberate and ambitious ambitious and bold for this country, because we've had a pretty good run, right, Shay? I mean, 150 well, years, it's been pretty easy being Canadian. But the world is not the same world we're going to wake up to, and so we've got to be much more bold and ambitious and aggressive and take charge of our destiny. Those are the things we're saying. Now, politically, of course, that's, that's not the way it works, right? Any political party thinks about, you know, the next election. We're saying, think past that. Think about what kind of a legacy we're going to be making for our children and grandchildren, and let's not make it the legacy of deficit and debt
0: deficit and debt. When we're talking about the kind of money that we're talking about here, and as you said earlier, these bills eventually have to be paid. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, the early estimates, um, $400 billion is what the predictions are we'll see yep. later today. Uh, could be higher, could be a low. we'll have to wait and see f- to get the exact numbers. But that's a tremendous amount of money. Um, how important is it to have some sort of plan in place to try and claw your way back out of that hole?
2: Well, as I said, I mean, look, Canadians are smart I was, and I grew up in Alberta. I remember the Ralph Klein days and the Martha and Henry. What are they thinking? (laughs) And they know that they can't live beyond their means. He used to compare the debt to a mortgage. That's not changed. This is a mortgage, and we're going to have to pay it back. And just like a mortgage, the rates can change on you. And so you've got to make sure you can afford it. And the best way to do that is growth right? Adding to it just for the purposes of adding to it because interest rates are low is not an economic strategy. But if you bring about a growth plan that says we're going to make Canada, you know, the world's smartest workforce, we're going to make sure that they're most, you know, the most connected, the most diverse, you know, the most educated. These are things that Canada has to its advantage to build off our strengths of our natural resources, but it requires leadership. It requires a clear vision and it requires a plan that has a partnership with business and labor. You can we can't do this as government. Government's proven to be you know, ineffective uh, in terms of economic growth by themselves. They're not the ones responsible for the job creation. We are. So enable us to do that with good public policy. Let us have a seat at the table. The United Kingdom just announced a robust plan with business and government sitting at the table and figuring out where do they want to go. So. It doesn't have to be done by yourself. We're we're here. Give us a, give us a holler. We're ready to work with you on this.
0: All right, Goldie, uh, a good take. We appreciate it, and we'll watch closely and see what uh, what comes out of Ottawa this afternoon. Thank you. Well, we'll know soon enough. All the best, Shay. Thanks for having me. That is Goldie Heider, who is the chief executive of the Business Council of Canada. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.